0: Well, if you have your Bible with you, we are in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. And today we're going to be looking at a church, and you may see, your Bible may spell it differently than I say it, or or vice versa. Uh, We are at the church of Pergamum. Get that out. He can't say Areopagus, I can't say Pergamum. We'll call it the P-Church, right? And that's what it is. It's a a tongue twister for me for some reason this week. But we've been studying the last several weeks since Mother's Day, the book of Revelation. And many of you are new here or, or first time in this series, we've entitled this God Wins. We're less interested in filling out the end times bingo chart than we are about filling out what God is doing in himself and showing us who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. And it's not to say that we shouldn't look for the signs and times. Jesus himself said to do that but we don't get obsessed with them to the point that that's all we hyper-focus on. And we want it to be about God and, and his encouragement to us. And the last two weeks, we looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, and now Pergamum this morning as we go through and look at this together. So if you're able this morning, we do a lot of up and down here. So if you're able this morning to stand with us to God's glory, would you stand as we read Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12 down to verse uh, 17. Verse 17, this is three of seven churches to remind you, or if you're new to the subject, these are literal churches that were some 2,000 years ago in modern Turkey, on the Asian side of Turkey. And these are churches that were struggling with various things, but all the while they have the same formula, and to an angel, and the words, and he gives them a commendation, a positive, pat on the back. He gives them some critique, Jesus does, and then he gives them some more affirmation and tells them, listen up. This is what the Spirit says to the churches. That's really the formula. But these are real churches, and it really applies to us today as well because God's word never returns void. It's timeless. So grateful for that. We'll hear it this morning as we read Revelation two twelve and following. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know, and this is Jesus speaking, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. "'Yet you hold my name fast, and you did not deny my faith, "'even in the days of Antibas my faithful witness, "'who was killed among you where Satan dwells.'" Notice that double emphasis there on Satan's dwelling place. "'But I have,' verse 14, "'a few things against you. "'You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, "'who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, "'so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality.'" So, verse 15, you also have held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I, Jesus, will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, then, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows it except the one who receives it. And all God's people said, whoa, that's a lot of symbolism going on. But welcome to Revelation. It's just part of the course. But as we study this today, I pray it's clear to you. But I want you to see today why we are standing against spiritual compromise. This is the compromising church where Ephesus was the loveless church. Smyrna was the persecuted church. This is the compromising church. And we need to be careful and be on guard against that very same thing today. Will you pray with me? And we'll get into it. Lord, thank you. We pray that you bless the word to our hearing and doing and and all the things that come with our faith. But Lord, we pray that the very lessons we learn today would apply to us, whether we've heard them before or they're brand new to us in our ears. May we do as you instructed us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Move me out of the way, Father. May you speak boldly through your word as you always do. Illuminate our hearts by your Spirit to your glory. And if there's any among us that don't know Christ, may they come to know that very truth today. Pray all this today in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Maybe seated. Thank you. Well, there's a story about a large store in a big city, maybe New York City, that was broken into one time in the middle of the night. And it was a strange burglary because nothing was stolen. Instead, the pranksters broke in and decided to, st- to go around the store in the darkness, not stealing items, but switching price tags. And in doing so, the next morning when the store opened, you can imagine that chaos ensued all across that store because there were priceless items that were brought to the counter with small price tags. And there were cheap items that were placed on the counter for amounts too big for what they were worth because someone had changed the price tags. Now, parents, you've never done that when your kids want something and you just say, well, look how expensive that is. We can't afford that. Now, that's never happened to you, I'm sure. But unfortunately, this is all too true of all of what happens today and the culture we live in, including the church in America. Someone has shifted the price tags. And in too many instances, we major in the minor things, and we minor in the major things. Does that make sense? That's exactly what is happening here at the church at Pergamum. In fact, what we know is, is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, is what many people have forgotten today. And it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. And that phrase that he says, that it was first importance. Most churches have traded what is important in the Bible out with something that is not so important in the Bible to emphasize what they want to emphasize. And that's exactly the sin that got Pergamum in trouble. They had all their bases covered. They took the persecution. They lost their jobs for Jesus. But when it came to the very things they allowed to happen within the walls of their church, their guard went down quickly. The the price tags, if you will, got shifted. And things that were, were things that were not. And as we look around, as we look within, the question confronts us does truth matter anymore? I mean, really, does it? We say it does, but for a lot of people, including churches, we don't, aren't so sure anymore because we've traded truth like Esau has traded his blessing for something else of this world. And in fact, that's what this letter is all about, how we stay from spiritually compromising ourselves and the truth itself. How do we walk in this world without compromising the truth? The big idea today is simply this, and if you're visiting, the big idea is the summary, the, the rifle shot of what this is all about, is that you cannot walk in truth with God and go and flow with this world. You cannot walk in truth with God and go and flow with this world. Because in today, in most places, you will not be a faithful Christian unless you are prepared to be weird. And to be weird is when you stand on biblical truth. When you say no to the things that the world says yes to, and you say yes to the things of God, the world says no to. The tags have been switched. And the world does not need cool Christians or cool pastors or cool churches. It needs people with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ to live among people who do not know Christ. Is our claim to be a disciple validated then by how we stand? So today, four reasons, four reasons why the church must contend for the truth and stand against spiritual compromise. Before we get there, as we've done the last several weeks, I want to give you an overview about what is going on at the church at Pergamum. Again, this church had endured much. The Christians there were eager to listen, as it were, to to God's word, but they were allowing the subtle things to come in and sink their ship. In Ephesus, and you'll see this on the screen, the church had rooted out all the heretics, but in Pergamus, or Pergamum, or Pergam, you name the city, how you want to call it, they tolerated them in love. Where Ephesus had been the doctrinal stronghold, they said, we believe the things of God, they were loveless, this church would only accept all things in love. That sounds a lot about what a lot of people celebrate this month about, don't they? Just love, man, make love, not war. Well, that's not the Bible, that's 1960s or Forrest Gump for us who didn't live in the 1960s. But nevertheless, heretics were tolerated in the name of love. The Ephesian church had a problem, but Pergamus or Pergamum had a loving zeal for the cause of Christ, even to the point of death, but they settled for what they believed. And I wanna remind us that everything we believe in this book is important, as how we love the people who we seek to share with from this book. And that second church, Smyrna, the church that didn't have anything wrong written about it, where the Smyrna church revealed the church to the world, the church at Pergamum revealed the world to the church. The church had become so worldly, they could not tell the difference between them and everybody else. The problem became not that they were going to gather, the problem became how they were going to gather and what they were going to do. In fact, if you know your history, you know in about 333 AD, the Emperor Constantine became the ruler of Rome. And do you know what he did? He accepted Christianity as the state religion. You know what happened to all those other Christian churches during that time? They became just like everybody else. And when politics and religion mix, it's like water and oil, man. It just does not work. Try and put oil in your your, uh, uh, water and drink it up. It's going to mess you up and vice versa, and it got messed up. And ever since that time, we've had a hard line discerning. We talked about this on Wednesday night, didn't we? Between the politics of the world and the mission of Jesus Christ, they are not always the same. Jesus is not a donkey. Jesus is not an elephant. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and that's where he remains, and that's where he is. But this church struggled with this. So where is Pergamum? Well, it's kind of like this. This is where they were if they were out on the sea. They were like a ship that had this happen. And uh, I feel bad for all these guys who had to clean these container ships up like this. Their ship started out level, but eventually it started to tilt to the side of the world and of Satan. Because Satan said, if I can't beat them through persecution, I'm going to join him through what they believe. And he got in there to a point. And we'll go over that in a little bit, a little bit later on. Worldliness had taken over the church, so they could not be recognized by anything else. But the city itself, what was it? It was 45 miles north of Smyrna, and you know this map. You've been here the last couple of weeks. We're number three up there on the map. John is a little black dot on the island of Patmos, and he's just going on a mail route. He's written to Ephesians, Ephesus, Smyrna, and now here. But they had several shrines. They had a 120-foot shrine to Zeus. They had a shrine to Dionysus, the, uh, one of the uh, Greek gods. They had a divine shrine built to Caesar Augustus, the Roman ruler. But they're most uh, well-known, I thought of our nurses and medical people here, for that snake. Have you seen that snake on some of the medical symbols? I'm going to kill this name, but Asclepius, Asclepius, my wife may not know that, I don't know. It's on all the medical things. It's a snake because they believe that they had the center of healing for all the known world, and we still use that today. But in all these times, for all the things they had going for them, they had nothing but trouble. And this is what is left of the city today, as you'll see on the screen. This is it. There's nothing left. But it was the longest surviving church out of the seven in the book of Revelation, interestingly enough. But to get from there to where they were at the time they ended was a lot of heartache. In fact, it had one of the world's biggest libraries, so much so that some of the earliest Christian literature after Constantine came and Christianized the nation was stored in these very libraries that were here today. A lot of good, a lot of bad, isn't it? let's get into it. What are the four reasons that we hold on to and contend for truth? That's the overview. Here's the first one. Because we hold on to truth because of the authority of Jesus. We hold on because of the authority of Jesus. Look back at verse 12. He says, and to the angel of the church at Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Who is this person? And all God's people said, his name is Jesus. That's who this is. This is the one That is coming with all authority. You notice that Jesus has a two-edged sword. And by now, you're probably catching the the authority that Christ has. If you go back back to chapter 1 and verse 16, it says in that same passage Nelson preached on a couple weeks ago, it says, "...in his right hand he holds seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp," what? 2 edged sword." Now, for many of you, that's going to shatter that, that, that 1960s hippie-looking Jesus picture that used to hang up in every church, right? Because it's a little bit different. But this is our God. Is this a literal sword? Is this a symbolic sword? The question is, I don't know. But the reality is, it speaks to his authority. Here, the resurrected, glorified, reigning Jesus says that I have judicial authority. Judge Judy, you got nothing on me because I'm the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And the sharp two-edged sword points to the authority of his word. This is no strange picture in scripture. God's word works like a sword. Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart. Paul, Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, here's the one you all know well, Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than any double-edged or two-edged sword. Here in graphic language, Jesus tells this church, I have authority. You do not. And Baptist folk that we are here, most of us here today, we believe the final authority in the local church is with the congregation. We're congregationalists. But lest we believe that any decision we make outside the blessing of Jesus Christ is blessed, it's not. Because without his blessing, it's nothing. So what is it addressing? The sword is addressing the sin within and the world without, Satan without. He's not addressing these words Jesus is to the city, but to the church. There was a lot of pastors in in pulpits during uh, political years where they use this pulpit to speak to the authority of the moment, and they, they take the cultural moment and speak to the authority of the moment. We have no authority unless it's given to us by Jesus Christ, and unless it's consistent with his word right here, we have nothing to stand upon. Jesus spoke truth to power, but his concern was not political corruption. It was the very thing that was happening in their midst, which was religious hypocrisy. They said, I love Jesus here, but in their hearts they tolerated things, in their heart and even in their mind, that he said nothing. And I want to remind you, church, our sister church, that God often brings his judgment beginning with the household of God. First Peter four seventeen, For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate await those who've never obeyed God's gospel or God's good news. The great news is, is that God disciplines his children, Hebrews 12, and he brings that to bear on them. If you don't have the discipline of God on your life, then we can say you don't know the God of life through his son, Jesus Christ. But the great thing is he never kicks out anybody and expels them from their family. Amen. And there are some rotten people that probably should be kicked out at times by how we are, even by God's grace. But each time he disciplines us, he, pers- he, he blesses us as he pursues us, and he does that in love. But he tells this church, before I come to you, I want to remind you who I am. I'm the authority, you're not. And I have a sword coming, and it's going to bring to bear what is happening within my church, Jesus says. That's the first reason we stand with truth and not spiritual compromise, because of Jesus's authority. Number two, you ready? Number two is because of the assurance of persecution. Well, that doesn't sound like a positive thing to say. Well, here it is. Verse 13, he tells you, he goes and says, I, who's the I here again? It's Christ. I know. We're going to emphasize that in a minute, but if you're an underliner, this is such an encouraging verse for you. I know. What does Jesus know? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny it. By my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. In Revelation 2.2, he said, I know your works to Ephesus. In Revelation 2.9 of Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation. In Exodus 2.20, God said he knew, he saw, and he understood what the uh, Israelites were going through. And he says, I know where you dwell here to the church at Pergamum. I know where you live. I've got your address I know your social security number. I have everything about you. No one has to steal your ID. I know your ID. I made you. I created you in my image. But he says, I know where you dwell. And he doesn't say, thank you for the welcome mat outside. Notice what the phrase says there. I know where you dwell, where who lives? Satan lives. Whoa. That's not something you ever want to be told about your church, is it? This is symbolic language here, and there's much speculation about what this means. But is this the political influences? Have the politics of Rome entered the church? And may I warn us that that happens here in America? You can be a Trumpite, an Obamaite, a Bidenite, a, a, a somethingite. We are no ites except Jesus Christ. That's where the power lies. But I want to remind you that it could have been a political dynamic that he's talking to. Maybe Satan got in a in political influence. Maybe it was cultural. Maybe they worshiped God on Sunday, but they went to the temples and ate the food that Paul said not to on other days. We don't know. Maybe it was religious idolatry. Maybe they literally had turned their hearts away from God himself. We have no idea. But the one thing we do know is that the one place Satan gets in is a spiritual attack. Satan was so in them spiritually that they were really, they missed the forest for the trees. And he says, I know where you dwell. That's where Satan's throne is. He may have visited Ephesus. He may have worked in Smyrna, but he tells this church, he lives where you are. That's an indictment against them. And it's a reminder to us very, very much that we should not allow circumstances to govern our devotion to Jesus Christ. If you're in Sunday school this morning, Jeremiah chapter two, we saw that. Jeremiah had a turn in Jeremiah 12, excuse me, where he talked about for the first time, he looked around, he saw all these wicked people and he said, God, why are there wicked people around me? How can I do this? And God told him in verse five, he said, if you can't run and beat men, how can you run with horses and win? In other words, Jeremiah it's only getting hotter in the kitchen. If you can't take the heat, then get out, because it's just going to get worse. And this church had been indicted to the point where there is spiritual warfare going on. I mean, let, let me rephrase it another way. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, so you may stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. To put it very simply, people are not your biggest problem. The influences of God that are not of God are Satan and his minions. That you could vote a problem in or vote a problem out is not it. This is a spiritual reality. He says, I know where you dwell, and it's in the midst of Satan. And what he goes on to tell him is that America, or we may say today, is, is, is in our churches today, we face the same reality. So many churches have so long since lost the very gospel that we seek to preach. It may never be here at Tower View, or any church that claims devotion to Christ. And you notice that name, that guy there? Did you notice that guy's name, Antipas? What about that guy? Well, we don't know much about him. We don't know really anything about him except two quick things. We know, first off, that he was a faithful witness. We know he was a faithful witness. And in fact, that's the same language used in Revelation 1.5 and chapter three, verse 14 about Christ, that Jesus is the true and faithful witness. And whoever this Antipas was, whether it's referring to an individual or a group of faithful people, He witnessed not just with his lips, but with his life. Even when Satan was getting the worst of that church, he stood for truth and didn't spiritually compromise. He took the persecution as it came. And he was faithful unto death. Jesus says to this church, I know where Satan dwells, but I also know where my faithful people are. Christian, you may find your place in a church or a belief community someday where you're the only person standing for the truth of Jesus Christ. You're not Martin Luther. You're not John Calvin. God may call you to put up 95 theses on that door someday. But the reality is you stay faithful to Christ and you're in the best place you could ever be. And that's where he stands. 2 Timothy 3.12 reminds us all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why do we stand against compromise and stand for truth? Because Jesus has authority and because there's assurance of persecution. It is coming. And if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And when you're out of the kitchen, check your spiritual pulse and say, do I love Christ more or do I love my comfort more? Because that's really what it comes down to. Number three, why do we stand for truth and not spiritual compromise? There's the authority of Christ. There's also what we just saw here in the assurance of persecution. But number three, because of the perversion of sin, the perversion of sin. Look at verse 14 down to the first part of 17. Read that again. He says, Jesus, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who have the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might not eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, BBN, if you want to (laughs) emphasize that. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. But he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is going on here? There's three names that will be mentioned here, and you've heard them. And he says, but I have this against you. Christian, I just want to remind you, just before we move on, this is not on the screen. If you are a Christian, you are secure in Christ forever because of what Christ has done for you. You cannot lose that salvation. He's talking to the church here. There's a lot of commendable things going on, but I have this against you. They allow the teaching of Balaam. We are not going to go back there for sake of time, but if you're note-taking or want to mentally note this... Go back and read Numbers 22, chapters 22 through 25. The big overview is, do you remember Balaam, Balaam's donkey? You know the story, right? Balaam was hired by the evil king of Moab called Balak, and Balak wanted Balaam, this, this prophet for hire, to go and curse the people of God. And you remember the story, don't you? He tries to curse them, and what comes out of his mouth? It's a blessing. It's good things, right? God confused him, or God gave him the words to say, and they were blessings. And 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 the king of Moab says, well, surely you got to try this again. And he does. And eventually all that comes out of Balaam's mouth is blessing. And you remember his donkey, don't you? He gets on, uh, every kid loves this story. Balaam's donkey is just kind of plodding along like someone in 100 degree heat wool, And uh, he gets mad at the donkey and he just, he says some bad things to the donkey. It's not, it's not pulpit. uh, It's, it's already pulpit stuff, right? So he says bad things to the donkey and get up there and move. And, Finally, the donkey stops. And you remember what's standing right in front of him? There's an angel of the Lord. And, and the donkey talks to him and basically says, look, there's an angel of the Lord right there. Quit hitting me. Leave me alone. And the long story of it is, is that Balak, the king of Moab, comes to the conclusion with Balaam that they're not going to win by cursing the people of God, that instead they need to get in another sneaky way, the back door. So one day... They hire out all the ladies of that time. And we have a lot of young ears here, and for sake of it, you can read it. But basically, they hire out the ladies to um, seduce would be the right word, the men of Israel. You remember the story? And they commit abominable acts because if you can't beat them, you join them. And the church at Pergamum, they tried to get in the front door. We're not budging. They tried to break them down. We'll take away your jobs. Not going to do it. So Satan got in the back door. And what he is telling this church is the same thing that Balaam was told, is that they gave themselves over. There are two key words here, food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. What was this church at Pergamum into? Well, if you connect the dots from the Old Testament to the New, they're in some pretty bad stuff. They were into things that God condemned long and long ago. And what he is telling them is that there are times that the devil can't kill a church, he'll join it. And oh, you mean every church member is not a Christian? I would dare say they aren't. Just because you have your name on a roll doesn't mean you're a Christian, even more than you're a car. Uh, If you sit in the garage for a few days and make car noises, you're not a car, you're a person. Revelation 2.13, they stood fast, but Satan joined them. It's a call for us to stand against spiritual laziness It's a call for us to stand. And he says that next word there. He says in verse 15, the Nicolaitans, we talked about them a couple weeks ago briefly. But the Nicolaitans were those who said, believe the good stuff, but live how you want to live. Oh, you became a Christian? You can go live it up out here. And it doesn't matter what you do. Guys, God never separates life and doctrine. They're always the same. There are many people who say, I don't like that doctrine stuff. It keeps people away. It separates denominations. No, it saves your soul because it teaches you what the Bible says. And then there are people who say, I just got to believe the right things and I can go do whatever I want to do. And the Bible says, no, you have to have both. Paul told Timothy to watch your life and doctrine closely. But by doing so, you will save not only yourself, but your hearers also. Be careful. Parents, grandparents, is a great reminder to us as we teach our kids and ourselves. It's not just that they can say the Wanna Bible verses or the VBS uh, motto for the year. They best know it in their hearts and their minds because they can have it all up here, and we praise God for that, but it has to hit here by God's Spirit to move forward in his grace. So he tells them to repent. How does he do this? It's a guard against laziness, but he tells them a couple ways. Two things the Lord deals with waywardness in the church, and this will be in your notes. He says in verse 16, therefore repent. They're doing crazy, evil things in their life and their doctrine. Satan has joined the church, if you will. They voted him in at a business members meeting, and it passed with flying colors. And it's in, the, it's in those notes that no one reads after the last business meeting. All Baptist jokes aside, he joined the church. So he says repent. Two things. Number one, Jesus calls him to repent of the worldliness. He's calling us to repent. He deals with worldliness by calling us to repent. It means by God's grace to search your heart to identify your sin, to grieve over it, to confess it, to flee it, and to to bow under the just punishment for it. The church at Pergamum was full of pollution, and what he tells them is, is that turn back to me. Turn back to me. That's why he says there in verse 17 that I will give to each a hidden manna. What Christ says is, is that sinners who are brought to the end of themselves will be overcomers. He will give them the nourishment to not only repent, but to grow from their repentance. And it is all to him by Christ overcoming it. He that overcomes. Christ is the manna, verse 17, connected to verse 16. Par excellence. It has a five-star rating. It never gets old. He's the true meat and drink of eternal life. And he calls it hidden manna in verse 17 because he calls him to repent. But the blessing is, is that God is going to sustain you when you repent. He doesn't just leave you out there. He who began a good work in you, Philippians six will see it until the day of redemption. He calls you to repent. Church member, regular visitor, whatever you are, is there something in your life you've allowed to be spiritually compromised? Somewhere Satan has gotten in, and there's a, there's a leak in your boat. You know, I know we all saw this last week with bated breath, and I was late to the, the, the news party of this about that submersible that went down to the uh, Titanic. What an ironic, and I, we pray for all the families who lost their lives, and, and, and rightfully so, and we also pray for all those in Greece or Macedonia who lost a refugee ship and hundreds died, and there's no news coverage of that. That's another grant, rant for another time. But the reality is, just as that Titanic went down, and you know the story, the history seems to suggest that a small iceberg cut a hole in the hole. A hole in the hole. Hole. <laughs> Say that five times fast. And you know the rest of the story. As the Titanic took on water, it just went down. Is there something in your life that you know you're leaking out of, but you need to turn to God? He's willing and gracious, and he is a God who is abundant in mercy. Seek him out. Call on him. He is faithful to answer. But here's another way Jesus deals with it. Notice what he says. He says, "I only repent, but he says at the end of verse 16, he says, I will soon come and war against them. War against who? The church? war against Satan? The answer is not a Nelson classic. Pastor Nelson, if you're visiting, he always he always puts two opposite questions that have the same reality. The answer is yes. And this one, we don't know. But I think what he's saying here, number two, as you see on the screen, is Jesus is going to fight against worldliness on your behalf, against you. Wait, Jesus is in my corner. He is. But he's also in your corner to get you to walk with him. Repent or else, He will visit this church and fight against evil. He'll fight against the evildoers, the Balaamites, the the Balakites, if you will, the Nicolaitans, all those mentioned in verses 14 and 15. But Christ does not always fight to destroy them, but to save his people. Think about Jacob in Genesis 32. Who was he wrestling all night? Was he wrestling an angel? He was wrestling the angel of the Lord, which is Old Testament for Jesus himself. You say, whoa, that's way too much information. Well, fire hydrant, here it comes. Jesus is there at the garden. Jesus is there in the, the fire. Jesus is wrestling Jacob. And we're told that a man, until the breaking of day, was there. What was his purpose with Jacob? It wasn't to kill Jacob, but it was to, you remember what he did? Whew. He got his hip socket out of joint. And if you've ever walked with your hip socket out of joint, and I have not, I hear it hurts a lot, right? And that's what he did. He didn't go there to kill him. He went there to break him and to show that... It was an expression of God's love. And so Jesus does with this church. He comes to the church and says, I am on your side. You are with me. You're not being let go by me, but I will not stand for this junk happening within my walls. He will draw you back because his love is everlasting. That's how seriously the Lord takes this promise. Aren't you grateful God didn't just let you go, but he brings it back. I'll just say a pastoral word about this is there are some churches who need to close their doors. They need to do that great, I know I'm like 15 years ago on uh, uh, advertisements, but back in 2009, they had the easy button commercial. Y'all remember this? Some of you you are way too young for that or way too old, I don't know. But you used to press an easy button, and you could just reset everything. Some churches need to press the hard but easy button to start over because their church has long since gone away. But for those churches, even that are struggling and need to turn the ship the right way, God is faithful to walk beside them with faithful people to see them back on the road. Not every church needs to stay open. There are some churches who need to close their doors. But if the church is willing to walk with Christ, Christ is willing to walk with them. But he warns them, though, if you don't, I will wage war against you until that church closes but don't we want church planning and revitalization and and all those great things, Pastor? Of course we do. We want all those things in all the churches everywhere. But if a church is not willing to walk with Christ, it doesn't matter how much money NAM or IMB or the state convention or local association throws at it, their hearts aren't right, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Can't teach a dog to do new tricks and you can't teach a non-Christian to be a Christian. That's by God's grace converting a soul. Be very careful. But notice lastly, why do you stand? Again, for truth and not compromise, perversion of sin, authority of Christ, also because of persecution, but finally, because of the promises of Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about this thing that we're trying to figure out. The manna is a sustenance. If you repent, he'll be with you. But what about this last part of verse 17? What is he saying here? Look one more time. We're going to land the ship, land the plane. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. The conquering is repenting, walking with Christ, moving forward with him, But the end of verse seventeen, I want to focus on this. I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on it. Not no one except him, to no one except uh, the one who receives it knows. Look, commentators have written a long time about what this could be. You know from the Old Testament that a priest on his breastplate had a white stone. Is that what it's talking about here? Maybe. Is it a reference to the Greek games? When you won, you didn't get a trophy. You got a white stone to show that you were an Olympic champion or. a game champion. Others said it had to do with the judicial courts, that the judge would take one or two stones, black or white. If the stone was black, that person was, you guessed it, guilty. If the stone was white, they were innocent. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm going to go with those old dead guys, the Puritans, that have long since been dead, And this is their interpretation. You can debate it or not, that's up to you. But these are the positive ones they pulled out. What does this white stone mean in relation to this? Those old dead guys from many, many years ago. And why do I like old dead guys? Willie, I'm stealing your thunder here. Thank you, brother, for teaching this over the years. Why do I like the old dead guys? Because we've had time to see whether what they taught and lived is true. I quote a lot of living guys, like a lot of you do, and gals. And that's fine to the degree. But I have a book in my office written by Paul Tripp. I've shared this with you before. Where on the back, three of the four pastors who endorsed the book bowed out of ministry for not the right reasons. And these were all big names that you would know if I shared them with you. Be careful who you trust. The old dead guys aren't any holier than anybody else. But at least their teachings have stood the test of time. What does this mean? First, justification. This white stone means Justification in white in the scripture, the verdict of forgiveness is the most valid explanation because God, the father of judge, whose judge has handed the believers over just like those stones of the courts of their day to be acquitted of all their sins. You're free. You are free in Christ. You have a white stone. You have a past to say, Satan, you can get in our church. You can get in my life, but you cannot take away what God has done for me that great pastor meme and I love if you know me on Facebook I love to post memes there's a pastor one day who said not today satan and he's like swinging his bible like this if you know Christ that's exactly what you get to do because you have a white stone of forgiveness that God has symbolized his atoning work finished once and for all in the person and work of Christ this sinner has been freed on the basis of the work and merit of Christ there's also sanctifying grace the white here seems to emphasize the work of the holy spirit it's a token of sweet fellowship with the Lord. Think of it as a momentum every time you pray, every time you think about what God has done for you, and he grants you a refreshing season, that he reminds you that you are free, and he's growing you in Christ, even despite all your sin. That's what some this says. Two other things, and we'll end. What else could it be? It also could be victory and honor. During this time when Revelation was written, people voted for offices And the person who won the award, just like the Olympian, was given a white stone. This white here seems to symbolize that the Lord has given us a foretaste of the judgment to come. In that, on that day, he will give each of us, his children, a white stone of past so that we can sit with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Go read Revelation 16. One day he will say, friend, come up higher and enjoy this everlasting feast at my right hand where the pleasures are evermore. And finally, this white stone is you have a personal fellowship with Jesus Christ himself. Aren't you grateful you don't have to go to a priest? Aren't you grateful you don't have to go to the Southern Baptist Convention president, a friend of mine, Bart Barber, and I only say that to say he's an accessible guy. He would look at you and say, don't come to me, go to him. You don't have to do anything except to go to Jesus Christ. And with this white stone, Christ shows the very personal nature of his work and of of his people. Friends, if you're here today, and you know Jesus, despite what may be happening in your church, your faith is secure. But for every church member here, of every church represented, may we recall with great seriousness what Christ calls us to, that we pray that at our doors at Tower View, we do not let spiritual compromise come in. Can I tell you how it spiritually compromises? What I'm about to say may surprise some of you, but I want you to know what this is. In the 1950s, the United Methodist Church started ordaining women to the pastorate. And you can argue about that all day long, but I want you to know, our United Methodist brothers and sisters right now are in a fight for their denomination. You may be aware of this. They've been in it for several years, most recently before COVID. But I want you to know that there's a conservative group and there's a liberal group. And one of the conservative groups has said, if we don't hold to the word of God, then we're going to let anything come to our churches. And the liberal groups say, oh, Well, if you don't have love, man, then nothing is worth it. Friend, be careful. A sister denomination who used to preach the high glories of God has settled for the things of the world in the name of tolerance, and God has taken away their lampstand, as it were, so much so that anything will pass in those churches so long as it's done in love and tolerance. I want to be very, very clear here. We love people where they are. We take people where they are. We want this to be a place where sin is not safe, but sinners are. But we also want to have the greatest backbone of doctrine and teaching and exalting God and Christ and His Word that anyone has ever known with humility and boldness and grace and all those things. And we can do that by God's grace. Thank you, the Church of Smyrna. But how easily. One ordination of a thing that the Bible says not against. This is not against women. Women, I hope you know this. If you've been to this church, you know you're valued here. But we believe that men and women are equally gifted to God, but the pastoral ministry is for those who are qualified by Scripture. Our own denomination was fighting this two weeks ago, by the way. But you need to know that church, the United Methodist Church, now tolerates every worldly sin that the Bible says the bowels of hell are open to. And don't think we as Southern Baptists are not close to that or even in the midst of that. We are very, very close. But my prayer for us at this church is not that we point the finger at everybody else, and that's not my point, is that we take a card from this warning that we need God's grace to not compromise, and we need his grace to stand for truth. And if we do those things, may God say to us, here's your white stone of blessing. And if we have that, that's all we need to stand on. Next week, I know many of you will be traveling. We're heading to Oklahoma. We will be here next Sunday, but we'll be leaving after church to go down to Natalie's family. A lot of you will be traveling. We're going to take a time out next week, just so you know, from Revelation, just a uh, one off sermon time, and a lot of be traveling. But would you pray as you go this next week or week or two that our church stands on the love and grace of Christ with the truth of Christ? Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much. Father, as we think about how easily it is in our own lives, our marriages, our parenting, our grandparenting, our jobs, our personal walks with you, our churches, how easy it is for us to say, like the people of Jeremiah 12, that we acknowledge you with our lips, but our hearts, though, Lord, are far from you. Father, may it never be that we, it can be said here of our church or our sister church visiting today or others. Father, that we, we we stood against the persecution. We stood up and we we were strong in the face of cultural and political and judicial things, but we allowed Satan to join the church. Father, there's a lot to unpack with that statement, we realize. But by your grace, would you help us to guard the very truths, the things that Paul said were deposited on Timothy's account? Would you help us, Lord, to stand firm on the very things that we have firm on and give grace certainly in the secondary issues and third-level issues that are not salvation-like, salvific, but are needed. But Lord, I also pray that we would love everyone where they are and tolerate the sin to the degree at which, Lord, we're embracing them, but at the same time pointing them back as you did with this church to repent and, and, and trust in you and seek you because you give that hidden man and you give that, that spiritual nourishment that's necessary for that repentance. For By grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is truly a gift of God. Father, we pray that this morning that you would help us, there's any individuals, pastors, deacons, church members, visitors, whatever here who need to repent, that you would call them to that. And Lord, if there's any here who do not know Christ, that you would draw them to the very truth that only your son saves, not by any work or any membership or anything else, only Jesus saves. We love you, Lord. Help us now. These are tough words, and uh, we pray that they're received with grace in my own heart and everyone here. But thank you that you walk with us, even when at times you may, as it were, were with us to point us back to you. Thank you for your loving correction. Thank you for the blessing that it is to know Christ. We pray all this today in his name, in Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.